You might notice that the title of my message is Making Sense of Consecration. So, what exactly is this idea of consecration? Really, consecration is just the idea of setting someone or something apart for a special purpose. You might know if you've ever watched World Cup matches that uh, at the beginning of a match, each player for each team is typically holding the hand of a boy or girl walking in, and they start typically with an unused ball. That ball, if you will, has been consecrated. It's been set aside for the match. It's a bit of the word holy or holiness strengthened. In the Hebrew, it's the difference holiness is to consecrated what breaking is to shattering. You know, it's one thing to simply break something, put a crack in it, but much more intense and strengthened is to shatter it. And that's what consecration is to holiness. It's the idea of setting something apart or for consecration, setting something apart for a holy God-centered purpose. And God did that with his priests. So follow along with me if you'll turn in your Bible. In the ESV, it's page 69. I promise you the end is in sight with this book. I'm hoping we'll be done by July. So we still have a bit of journeying to go. We've been in the book of Exodus for the most part since uh, March or April of 2021. And... um, I'm undercharged by my co-elders to preach something from the New Testament after this, to which I will be obedient, of course. So, Exodus chapter 29, page 69 in the ESV Bible. And if you've got it up, let me say to Penelope as we go, I may, I may read to a point and then say, let's turn to this verse. You'll see that. Now, this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, and an unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull And the two rams, you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban, you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them, and you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus, you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Now, you'll notice then this word about the bull beginning in verse 10, and then the rams will be beginning in verse 10. So let me, I'm going to read 10 through 18, and then we'll skip the reading on the second ram. Continuing with verse 10, then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, And shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger. And the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. And I think it's safe to say from chapter 27, this is the five cubit or seven and a half foot square altar, bronze altar specified from chapter 27 with horns at its corners. And they're to then put some of the blood there on the horns of the altar, he says, with your finger. And the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. And you shall take all the fat 
that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat is on them and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. And there you want to remember Hebrews 13. I'll keep reading here. Then you shall take one of the rams and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram and you shall kill the ram and shall take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces and wash its entrails and its legs and put them with its pieces in its head and burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Now, I'd like to come down to verse 26, if we can. And we'll read through 28. You shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's ordination and wave it for a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be your portion. And you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering that is waved and the thigh of the priest's portion that is contributed from the ram of ordination, that is the second ram, from what was Aaron's and his sons. It shall be for Aaron and his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel. For it is a contribution. It shall be a contribution from the people of Israel, from their peace offerings, their contribution to the Lord. Continuing verse 29. The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him. They shall be anointed in them and ordained in them. The son who succeeds him as priest, who comes into the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place, shall wear them seven days. Now, I want us to look there again at verse 35. And I think it's helpful. I want to just pause for us to say there's a degree of difficulty in understanding Are some of these offerings restricted to the seven-day cycle for the ordination of priests, or is something in mind in perpetuity as in every day beyond simply a seven-day cycle when the priests were to be ordained? I think it's very difficult to speak uh, dogmatically about that, but in verse 35 then, through 37, it, it's, the language there is about the seven days, right? And so you have this, this idea of an everyday bull, and then you have the ram, the first ram, verse, verse 15, the second ram, verse 19. And if you thought that was a one-time offering, when you read in verse 36, it says, every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. And that seems to connect with the seven days in verse 35, all right? And so then when you come to verse 36, which is where we'll continue to read, the question is, is are these, in addition to the everyday bull in the first and second ram, are these a lamb in the morning and a ram and a, and a lamb in the evening for those seven days in the consecration and ordination of priests, or is this in perpetuity to Israel? It's difficult to tell, okay? But let's read. The, the principle here is of sacrifice, of sacrificial offering. Now, this is what you shall offer on the altar. Again, verse 38, rather, verse 38. Two lambs a year old, day by day, regularly. The question is that regularly, is that the seven days, or is this consistently day after day? Verse 39, one lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of a hen of beaten oil and a fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering. 
the other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer with it a grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory, that is the meeting or the offerings. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. And then sounding something right out of chapter 25, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. They, and they shall know And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God. In Isaiah 48, 40 verse 8 we read, we'll stand forever. Let's go to the throne of grace one more time. Oh God, how marvelous that you hear us. How marvelous that as surely you met Moses, you met Aaron and the priests, you met the sons of Israel there at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So you long to meet with us. You long to dwell with us. And as your word says, the tabernacle of God, the dwelling place of God is with men. Both amaze us tonight. Quicken us tonight. Help us not to be lethargic as we think of this, that you want to dwell with your people. You, the God that expelled our first father, Adam, from the garden because of his sin and our sin in him and who guarded that east entrance by the cherubim with flaming swords, you in Jesus Christ, you want to dwell with us. So be with us tonight as we hear your word. Teach us, show us Christ as that great high priest who went and entered the veil once for all for us. We pray in his name, amen. Well, tonight for a second week in a row, we're looking in Exodus at the priests in the priesthood. Last week in chapter 28, we studied the priests and their clothing. And kids, you might know, uh, as we think about last week's message, holiness, priority for priests, that if you look there in your Bible in Exodus 28, you see this, the priest's garments. And you would say, what exactly is a garment, right? And you think about that. This week, of course, it's consecration of the priests. Clothing or garments last week, consecration this week. What's happening here? We're in the middle of a chunk of passages where the Lord is giving Moses instruction over a 40-day period of time, and Moses receives them on the mountain concerning the tabernacle or the tent of meeting, the furnishings for both the tabernacle and the courtyard, like the bronze altar in chapter 27, as well as the holy garments for Aaron and his sons that were to be made for glory and beauty as long as the priesthood remained. And why? Why all this? The answer is found in Exodus 25 and verse 8, but also repeated there in Exodus 29 and verse 45 and verse 46. It's this. It's very simple. And let them make me a sanctuary... Exodus 25, 8, that I may dwell in their midst. And when you take all these instructions in, 
when you begin to get this picture of the tent of meeting and its furnishings, the tent of meeting and in its division with the veil, the holy place, the most holy place, the furnishings within and out and the courtyard and the holy garments for the priests. When you begin to take this all in, then Paul's grief over his unconverted Jewish kinsmen is understandable. And he writes with heavy heart in Romans 9, verses 4 and 5. He says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the crest, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And when Paul was contemplating the beginning of the tabernacle and its construction somewhere around 1445 B.C., and its existence from there for some 400, I think, uh, somewhere to like 960 B.C., a very, very long time, over 500 years in that time period, or I don't know, 480, 490 years. And he contemplates the tent of meeting. It's furnishings, the Levitical priesthood of which Aaron and his sons were part. Aaron was a Levi. We remember this from Exodus 4. When Paul says of his Israelite fellow, his kinsmen, he says, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. He has something like this in mind. He knew even if he never saw it with his own eyes, he had something of the glory and the privilege that it was for Israel. So how do we make sense of consecration? This holy setting apart of the priests and the priesthood, and more importantly, what does it all point to? So there's only three words from the outline for our message, and what are they? Very simple. Number one, adornment. If you're taking notes, you want to take notes around these three key words. Adornment, anointing, and atonement. Kids, when you hear the word adornment, you want to understand that it's what? It's just a big fancy word like garment for what? What's another word for adornment or clothing? Or garment? Clothing. There it is. I gave it to you. Okay. It's what you and I wear. And let's not kid ourselves. We worry about this. Maybe some of you will find yourself coming up to an event and you're thinking, I don't have anything to wear. Maybe husbands, you've heard your wife say that at something at times. Well, I don't have the right shoes to go with this. Clothing, garments, adornment matters. And if you're looking at chapter 29, you see that heading, the priest's garments, just another fancy word for clothing. And so the priest's clothing from Aaron as the first high priest to his youngest son was to be holy, special, consecrated. Moses with the craftsmen were to make holy garments for glory and beauty. And we're going to see more about that in coming weeks with the men and their workers that do all this fabrication, this artisanal work. And those special garments, of which there were six, the ephod, the breastpiece of, ju- the breastpiece of judgment, robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, a sash, and then even another thing, you might say it's the seventh, special for Aaron, this holy crown, for Aaron is a high priest, all of these were fitting, they were appropriate for those men who would serve God as his priests for the people of Israel. It was far more significant then that Solomon would say in the book of Ecclesiastes, guard your steps as you go to the house of God. We live a bit more in a day where anything goes. And maybe for some of you, it wouldn't even matter if I came up and preached in torn jeans and you wouldn't think anything of it, okay? But for others, you'd be like, no, that's not appropriate. 
And so for the priesthood, they could not and would not dress as they wanted, but as God wanted. They could not and would not worship and offer sacrifices as they desired, but only as God desired and as God described and commanded. God in his greatness and authority and as the creator and redeemer of Israel and to us in Christ Jesus has both the first and final word about the worship that we will offer him. And it points pretty simply to what we call the regulative principle of worship. We don't invent worship in the New Testament era. We take the basic elements of worship and we try to use wisdom. This Last night I, I told, if you were here this morning, I told Stephen David, he said, how long should I preach? And I said, when you hit 50 minutes, people may get up and leave. Now, you can keep preaching, but they'll probably, that's about the limit for most of us. Of course, you'll notice he was done early. But the length of a sermon, whether we have can lights or chandeliers, whether we sing with guitar or electric piano or flute or violin, whether we sing two songs and then one Right before the sermon, one in response to those are circumstances. But it is God who has the first and final word about worship. And so as we consider the adornment of the priests, it speaks to this. And so in verses 5 through 9, now if you'll get your eyes on this, you'll see that Moses is instructed to take all the garments described in chapter 28 and put them on, that is, girt and set upon Aaron and his sons, those holy garments that were to be for glory and for beauty. Last week, we noted that the priests were not self-appointed. And kind of consistent with that is that it looks like they were outfitted by another, like someone that's sitting, and you can see Aaron there, and Moses, maybe with a couple of others, is getting him fitted with the ephod and the breastpiece of judgment and all these other things. Finally, in one final act, setting that holy crown upon the turban with the robe and coat of checker, uh, the coat of checker work, the sash, all of that Moses is to do. They're to set it upon them. You'll notice that Aaron's garments, if you'll see, in ver- beginning in verse 8, Aaron's garments are different. His adornment is different than that of his son. So Aaron's actually there, beginning verse 5 through 7, beginning with the coat, the robe of the ephod, and then finishing there with the holy crown on the turban, the anointing oil. His dress is different than that of his son's. Because he's the high priest. He's got the ephod and the breastpiece with the names of Israel in two sets. A set of six names here on one onyx stone. A set, another set of six on the other. And then four rows of three distinct stones. A total of 12 in all. With the names of the 12 tribes of Israel before the Lord. And not just to prove that they would not forget the names. But symbolic of the one who saves us individually and whose names are known to him. So kids, let me ask you, do you know that God knows your name? Have you ever thought about that? That he knows Nora and Beniah, he knows Selah and Jude, and he knows Betsy and Samuel. He knows your name. He could not forget them. And in fact, in the song before the throne of God above, we sing these words. My name is graven what? On his hands. My name is written where? On his heart. That's right. Okay. As we think about adornment, look also with me in verse 21. And you'll notice that it is upon the garments of Aaron and his sons that some of the blood of the slaughtered animals and oil is sprinkled, not just upon their persons, but upon their, garden, upon their garments. So not only was 
each specific piece of the holy garment described here and given to Moses while he's on the mountain, but it's, it's not enough. There's this requirement that the blood of the slaughtered animals and the oil is sprinkled upon these garments. And so you might say that holy garments symbolically are sanctified by this holy sprinkling. And in case we forget that the priest must be adorned in holy garments, look again at verses 29 and 30. Not that you could forget, but there they are again. The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him. They shall be anointed in them and ordained in them. There's a sense in which as the priesthood began and was instituted, it should continue. And holy garments and therefore holiness was not a temporary provision. And as surely as it was necessary for those saints, when they read that sermonic epistle, the book of Hebrews, and they saw there in Hebrews 12 verse 14, pursue peace with all men in the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, as it was not simply a requirement for the people of God, a necessity in the first century, so it is today. It was modeled there all these years before, right? 15th century B.C., marked in Hebrews 12 for the first century church, and even to us now. Holiness is not a temporary provision. And so the priests, the priesthood, their garments and their service was to be marked by this glorious, glorious holiness a purity that is none other than God's desire for consecration, that his people would be set apart. And that's part of the theme that's being established. We are a set-apart people. That's the adornment. Let's speak secondly of the anointing. First adornment, now our second word is anointing. You'll notice that, yes, the priests were washed. Don't glance over this in verse 4. It says, that the very first thing, in addition to the bowl and these rams and this bread and wafers and cakes, is that as Aaron and his sons were brought to the doorway of the tent of meeting to be consecrated, the first thing that happened to them was that they were washed with water. They were washed with water. They were cleansed. We read in the book of Hebrews also that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And ironically, when in Isaiah 1 and verse 18, when the prop, God is speaking through the prophet, he says, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be red as scarlet, God is able to wash them white as snow. But I want us to see now this anointing, the anointing of Aaron and his sons. Without question, a picture of this Spirit's outpouring, his enabling, his equipping, and his empowering. It was Sinclair Ferguson that says of Pentecost in Acts 2, and as Peter is preaching, it's a fulfillment of that prophecy in Joel 2, that what was taking place there was the inaugural outpouring of the Spirit upon the church of God. And no doubt this points to it, this Spirit by anointing, is outpouring, is enabling, equipping, empowering that Aaron and his son symbolically needed that in their work. And we could have anticipated this when Moses was commanded in chapter 25 and verse 6 that the sons of Israel were to bring spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. What do we see about this anointing? I want you to see in verse 7 the timing of of their anointing. He says, you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. First, they're washed. Second, they're adorned. Third, they're anointed. They're anointed. And this is all part of an elaborate, specified, detailed seven-day ordination ceremony. But I want you to see something else in verse 21. 
If you'll turn there. Let me read this. It's the anointing oil along with the blood of this slaughtered second ram that's known as the ram of ordination is used particularly to convey as together they're mingled so the oil and the blood from this ram are sprinkled there on Aaron and his sons on their garments to convey that the priest consecration required both the blood of the atonement and we might say of the covenant and the outpouring of the spirit he says then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his sons garments with him he and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his son's garments with him. I want you to notice, but the priests were to be anointed in their garments, in the garment of holiness. Look also in verse 29. You'll notice in verse 29 it says, the holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him. They shall be anointed in them and ordained in them as though a holy, no blemish life without the anointing of the Spirit is inadequate. We need holiness and uprightness, but we need this unction, we need this power, we need life in the Spirit. We need the Spirit Himself. That's why Paul would say later in Galatians 5, he says, If we live by the Spirit, if the Spirit vivifies us and gives us life and breathes life into these dead bones, we need the Spirit daily, dependence, craving for God to do in us what He can only do by His Spirit, not by might nor by power, we read in Zechariah, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. I cannot repent. You cannot repent. You cannot apply faith to fear without the help of the Spirit of God. You're weaker than you think you are, but God is stronger than you know him to be. And when Paul prays this prayer that I love so deeply in Ephesians 3, about that we might be filled up to all the fullness of God, we cannot know that apart from the Spirit at work in us, this idea of anointing. And I'm not referring, just in case you're thinking, I'm not referring to a second blessing. The moment you are regenerated, you have what? Who? The Spirit. You do. You do. There's a fourth point I want us to see as we think about anointing, and that is, it might surprise you, but even the altar needed this anointing act. Look in verse 36. Is he speaking of the seven days, a seven-day ordination ceremony, the idea of completion, perfection in those seven days to distinguish it as opposed to six or eight. He says, and you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it. And you shall anoint it to consecrate it. What's the idea? Let me illustrate this with words. It's not only what you say, but how you say it that matters. It's why Paul says, speaking the truth, what? In love, or literally truthing it in love. A proper offering may be offered improperly, just like a theologically rich song or theologically eloquent Puritan prayer may be sung or prayed with a dark, unbelieving, even hateful heart. Adornment, anointing. Finally, I want us to come to atonement. One final word. 
And naturally, a huge part of the priest's work was to receive and offer the offerings or sacrifices. Now, let's think about this just for a moment. As Pastor Jamie will be preaching through the book of Hebrews, and we're doing this as family, right? This, if you're watching on live stream, we're glad you're watching, but principally, we're preaching for a church gathered locally. Yeah, okay. So when the writer of the book of Hebrews speaks of the priests standing and daily ministering with this unending process, if you will, of processing sacrificial offerings, that is in contrast to what about the offering of our Lord Jesus? His was right. You know, a lot of times we do this like, I'm number one, we're number one in all this. But the message of the book of Hebrews and the supremacy of Jesus is that his offering, part of, the, of, of how it was supreme, what was supreme about the Lord Jesus is that the offering of himself was perfect and therefore only needed to be offered once. Once for all time, once for all his people. But what the Son of God in his priestly office continues to do at this very moment is he continues in his session, seated at the right hand of his Father in exalted authority, as Pastor Stephen David was preaching from Matthew 28 this morning, the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given, and he is interceding for us now and for all his sheep. Are you his? He's praying for you. Have you not yet come to him, if you can imagine this, if you're still in your sins, yet you're a sheep and he'll bring you to himself? He's praying for you. Your name is engraven on his hand. Your name is written on his heart. But the priest's work was unending, a bloody Never-ending, 24-7, 365, sacrificial system of industry. And in this chapter, you'll find five different types of offerings. Sin offerings, burnt offerings, food offerings, peace offerings, wave offerings. And there'll be more about those in the months, maybe in years ahead as we preach more through the Old Testament and get into the detail. But here's the point. There are two types of mediators. There are prophets who spoke to men on behalf of God, but then priests who speak to God or serve God on behalf of men. And within the seven days, as we think of atonement, there was the bull of the herd and the two rams, and the lamb in the morning, the lamb lamb at night. We see all that. None of these were to have blemishes. And in parallel to no blemish animal sacrificial offerings was bread and cakes and wafers that did not have the blemish or if you will the pollution of what what symbolized impurity and sin. Leaven. Going forward and thinking about this, I, I want to offer you to take your hands. Kids, I want you to imagine you're putting your hands on the head of an animal, and that animal is about to be slaughtered. So kids, just do that. Can you do that for a minute? Just think about it. Your hands are on the head of an animal, and the priest is about to put a knife to the throat of that animal and kill it, bleed it out. Okay. So let's think of these as expiatory offerings, or with reference to sin, expiatory with reference to sin. But also, now take your hands and do this. Kids, do your hands and do that. Okay. That's a Eucharistic offering of thanksgiving. So literally, to give thanks to God is to give God your hands. 
So one, the first, what we call the expiatory offering, the hand is laid upon the head of the animal just like Aaron and his sons did. When you read that, all right? In verse 10, it was Aaron and his sons who laid their hands on the head of the bull. And they did this to symbolize the transferring of guilt. But for the second category of sacrificial offerings, what we call Eucharistic, there's the lifting up of our hands to God in thanksgiving to say, everything God I have, every good and perfect gift that is from above has been given by you. Even the ability to offer this offering of thanks in the moment of offering thanks. But as we think then, not just of adornment, not just of anointing, but of atonement, I want you to notice just four things in summary about the offerings in Exodus 29. Number one, and there'll be more. We can be developing these, this over months. Number one is to note that the offering must be without blemish. And it points to our Lord Jesus as that perfect offering. Number two, the offerings, there was a sense of continuity. The offerings were to be continual. And that's why you'll read later in the book of Hebrews, and Pastor Jamie gets there, it speaks of the, the, the priests ministering daily with the sacrificial offerings. And I think that's why, I think it's fine to make the case that in the end of Exodus 29, that this lamb in the morning, maybe the lamb uh, at twilight, is an ongoing thing, not just the one week where the priests are being consecrated. The third thing I want you to see is that the offering represents both the transferal of guilt, but also the satisfaction of God. By the hands on the offering, there's this transferal of guilt. And that's where we get the idea of, of kafar or atonement. It's the, it's the word for cover. So the priest's hands literally covered the head of the sacrificial offering. But also the satisfaction of God. Make no mistake, when you read about a burnt offering and the idea of that be pleasing to God, it's because the very organ that's focused on when God is angry, when God is, speaks in the Bible, God is long in the nose, he's angry. And so when God speaks of the pleasing aroma of a burnt offering, we're talking not just that God has decided to make a legal uh, verdict, not guilty, go over here, you not take the chains off, release the prisoner. But in fact, in this case, in the giving of the sacrifice, there's this pleasure of God. God is satisfied, the satisfaction of God upon the offering of a perfect offering. And then finally, I want us to see that central to the sacrificial offerings is this shedding of blood. Do not miss this and its ability to remove guilt, to cleanse and to restore us to God. You know in Hebrews 9, we read, without the shedding of blood, uh, there's no forgiveness uh, of sin. And even in the book of Zechariah, that, that there would be a day in, that through the Messiah that there would be this fountain that would be open for sin, for, clean, for, for forgiveness and for cleansing. And of course, that's the fountain of our Lord Jesus. I'd like you to turn with me in closing to Hebrews 13. You might remember as we think about making sense of consecration, that there was a concern for the adornment of the priests, the anointing of the priests, and their atoning sacrifices that they offered. And you might remember that I said, remember Hebrews 13, when we came to that part in Exodus 29, where with the bull, that first animal that Aaron and his sons had laid 
their hands on his head. And they'd killed him there before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And you might notice that only a very small part of the bull was burned upon the altar. There was blood, and that blood was put on the horns of the altar. The rest of the blood poured out of the base of the altar. But just the fat around the internal organs, the long lobe of the liver and two kidneys and the fat on them, only that was burned on the altar. The rest of the bull, which had to be multiple hundreds of pounds, was hauled outside the courtyard. And it points us to Hebrews 13, where we shall end, where you hope every good sermon ends. And that's with the contemplation, that's with the look upon our Lord Jesus. And I find it instructive in Hebrews 13, in verse 17, that when the writer says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, considering the outcome of their way of life, imitate their faith. Who is the object of their faith? Verse 8, it's Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So now watch this. He says, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Okay, so watch. Imitate their faith. There's Jesus Christ. It's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. And he says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right. There's something under this new covenant, and that is a great high priest who has passed through the heavens and who endured from sinners such hostilities against himself so that we, those who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, may feast upon him who is the true bread of life. But look and follow with me in verse 11 as he refers to the sacrificial system that's first described in Exodus 29. This is the reference. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sins are burned outside the camp. And the writer is saying that as surely as that bull bloodied up and with part of its organs cut out and its blood drained out, some of it on the tips of the horns of the altar and poured out at the base of that altar, he says all this is to prompt us, is to put a hand in the small of our back And to go to the Lord Jesus, who though he was the most royal of high priests, who will come with a golden crown, but with a sword in his mouth to judge the living and the dead, yet it was he who suffered outside that gate that he might sanctify us through his own blood. You may never be clothed like those priests in this life. You may never look as dapper as Aaron or any great or any high priest did with the gold crown and the turban and the ephod with the two onyx stones and this breastpiece of judgment with four rows of three, all of that. You may never quite look like that. But you may go to the Lord Jesus, and he promises this. He promises to do for you what no sprinkled blood, what no dripping anointing oil could ever do for Aaron and for his sons, and that is to make you right before God. Do you ever feel like your feet are in quicksand? You're running this Christian life. 
Who gets weary? Do you ever just get, yeah. It's the Christian life. is a difficult, painful progress. When you read the book Pilgrim's Progress, that progress he made was not without lots of tears and trials and difficulty. And this is amazing that we're invited to go out And you can imagine any Israelite hearing this and thinking about that animal outside the courtyard. He says, let us go to him outside the camp and and bear the reproach that he endured. And he goes on to say, he says, for we here, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, not through ourselves, not in our own strength, through this one who went and suffered outside the gate, who shed his own blood that he might sanctify completely his people and we might bear his image. Let us go and do two things. Bear the reproach that he endured. Bear that, but also offer up holy offerings of sacrificial praise, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And he says, and beyond that, not just, le- not just in word heavenly, not just vertically, he says, but do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Making sense of consecration. We knew that for the priests last week, holiness was the priority. We're to be adorned in this bright holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We need the anointing. We need the Spirit. and We can pray for that. We can pray, oh Lord, it's a valid prayer. Fill me with your Spirit. Please help me to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. But then also, as we think about atonement and we see all this, this picture, this bloody picture of sacrificial offerings, slaying of animals, the offering of bread and cakes and wafers. And we're trying to make sense of us. And these two categories of offerings, expiatory with reference to sin, but also these thanksgiving offerings, what we call Eucharistic offerings, where our hands are lifted up and we're saying, Thank you, Father, receive from me my thanks. This, these three words, that's how we make sense of consecration. Let's go to him who suffered outside the gate.